0: Exodus. I've had people, uh, especially pastor types, ask me the question, serious? You're going to walk through the entire book of Exodus? And my answer is yes. If the entire Bible has been given to us for our good and for our benefit, the book of Exodus is is critical and i'm I'm going to get into this later why it is critical but i want to encourage you grab your bible right now it's the the easy thing is second book of the bible genesis exodus uh, page 45 and we are going to walk through the entire book of exodus and it's going to be divided into seven or eight sub series and the first series that we are going to be walking through is The first seven, I think, uh, sermons is called The God Who Hears. The God Who Hears. And we're going to be seeing how this God, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a God who hears. And therefore, not just the God who hears for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the God who hears our cries, our, our deepest hearts' desires. So Exodus 1, verses 1 through 14 These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful And increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape uh, from the land. Therefore, They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard or heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in the hands and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now turn over one page. Chapter 2, 23 and 24. During those times, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for a blessing on his word. Father God, we we come to your word this morning, not as uh, distant observers, and not with just historical eyes, looking back at past events with historical figures, but Lord, we come into this with your spirit leading and guiding us. Lord, I pray that our eyes and our hearts would be open to the beauty of your infallible and inerrant word. So that it may change our hearts and our lives. So Lord, we entrust ourselves over the next few minutes to you. To whatever you have in store for us this morning. Mold us and shape us according to your word. So that you may be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past Monday, I had the privilege of being a stay-at-home dad with my kids. And uh, moms, some of you are probably twitching because, you know, when dad is hu- at home with the kids, uh, the house generally tends to be a, a total disaster, and the kids eat nothing but junk food. And, uh, and they just play, if you anything like my home, the kids love it because they have a newfound freedom of from chores. And so... During the course of the day, there is my son, just, if you know my youngest son, Isaac, he loves the computer, loves the computer, uh, and I, I'm a little scared that he's going to turn out, you know, the type of kid that is constantly going to have an iPad in front of him or an iPhone, he's going to be constantly texting, or he's, if TV is on, he's like glued to it, and you might be talking and screaming, and he, he can't hear a thing. Any other parents have those problems made with their kids? Yes? Or maybe you personally have those problems? Uh, so Isaac and I were having a, a conversation as I'm noticing him stuck and glued to our iMac, and Ch- Isaac had one of these childhood epiphany moments. You know what I mean? Where all of a sudden he, he has this aha moment of, oh my, I, really that happened? And what we were doing is we were talking about how technology back when I was a kid, what, what technology was when I was a kid compared to technology today. You know, I grew up in the age where the Internet was birthed. I remember going to Trinity Christian College not having a clue in 1988 what this Internet thing was. And my son, that's all that he has known. So we were talking about technology, how quickly it has changed and the way that it shapes our everyday lives and And all of a sudden, I I said to him, Listen, you know, Isaac, you've grown up in a world where you've always had it. There was a time where there was no internet, there was no email, there was no YouTube, there was none of these things. And all of a sudden, his eyes got really big and said, What? How did you guys survive? (laughs) You know, that kind of like, Are you serious? And it was one of those funny moments as we just kind of reflected on how many things that we take for granted in our present culture and sometimes we become so familiar with them and so comfortable with them that we forget what life was like in a time that was not really so distant. And we talked about those earlier days and how remarkable things, how remarkably quickly things have changed. And I would suggest... That as New Testament believers, those in the, that period after Christ, how we are a bit like my son when it comes to how we see and look at even a book like Exodus. And it's remarkable how, how different the spiritual dynamics are as even Exodus unfolds from the beginning chapter to the last chapter of Exodus, how the spiritual dynamics for these people of Israel really changes and unfolds and and becomes more dynamic. And we can hardly imagine what life was like for them. In the book of Exodus, there are many themes and symbols and concepts that have deep biblical meanings that are birthed here. It's a very foundational book, For those of us who call ourselves Christians. And here's some examples of things that would be absent. Prior to Exodus. Prior to Exodus. There would have been no context whatsoever. For words like Lamb of God. There would have been no context for Passover. Unleavened bread. Wilderness wanderings. There would have been no context for understanding. Ten commandments. Or manna or bread from heaven. There was no law, there was no sacrificial system, there was no ark, there was no tabernacle, there was no priesthood, let alone a priesthood of all believers. There was no identity of Israel as a a specific nation. There was no understanding of the Lord as Yahweh, the, the I am, as being holy or even near. So obviously, these, for us as New Testament believers, these are very significant themes as it relates to biblical theology. And it's remarkable how important Exodus is in the development of these crucial ideas and concepts. But there's one more issue that is foundational to everything else that is found in this book, and it's the the understanding of salvation. Prior to Exodus, God was not known as a rescuing, saving, or delivering God. And the Exodus event became a defining moment in God's relationship with his people. That's why we need to understand and we need to study and dive into Exodus. It is foundational, a foundational book for our understanding of God and the gospel. uh, Alec Matir, in his commentary, says the following about Exodus. Listen to it. It begins the normative Old Testament biblical revelation of God's way of salvation. It underlines the nature of God as holy and mankind as sinners. It explains the meaning of blood and sacrifice. It's a book of grace which reaches down from heaven And of the law which teaches redeemed sinners to live in heavenly terms. While some of these great biblical truths are foreshadowed in Genesis, he says, Exodus pulls them all together, giving them a shape and a definition that the rest of the Bible will not alter. Under the simplest of forms, and by many a fascinating story, Exodus reveals fundamental truths, and is, in fact, one of the Bible's greatest building blocks. Exodus, the second book of the Bible, is, he says, probably considered one of the greatest building blocks of the entire Bible. How many of you have ever done a real inductive or deductive or Bible study on Exodus? A couple of you. Okay, most of us go towards the New Testament, you know, we... We like the Apostle Paul, we like what he has to say, or we kind of stick in the Gospels, you know, because that's the red letter section, you know, that's really important stuff. So we stick in those sections. But this book defines God and his relationship to his people. Exodus uh, chapter 20 is the section where you are going to find the Ten Commandments. And there's what's called the preamble, the section before the first commandment. And God says this, I am the... Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. So the events recorded, the laws given, the images portrayed, the worship that is inaugurated here in Exodus are foundational to the gospel. The message that Jesus delivers people from the slavery of sin is central to all this book. He is a God who saves his people. And in the same manner as God saves the Israelites from Egypt, brings them through the Red Sea and brings them onto dry ground and watches uh, all of Egypt be destroyed, this same God delivers you and me from the slavery of sin. same God. The salvation out of Egypt with a sacrificial lamb and blood is a clear indication of what is to come with Jesus Christ. But Exodus does more than just foreshadow and predict, it does more than that. It establishes the foundational concepts which the new covenant is based and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think, think back to uh, John 1. John the Baptist was out baptizing people, and all of a sudden he sees out of the corner of his eye Jesus coming. And what does John the Baptist say? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That statement has no meaning without Exodus. No meaning. This book is foundational. So what is, this, what is this book really going to be about? What, what is its primary message? At first you might think that it's really a, a really neat collection of children's Bible stories that are really kind of fun to tell. You know, it's about these people of, of Israel ever since the Exodus, and it's really a collection of their stories. It's kind of like a, an American history book of everything that has happened. You read stories like the Passover. You read stories like the, the crossing of the Red Sea. You hear about Mount Sinai and easily come to the conclusion that this book is really about these people. And while Exodus does contain some absolutely amazing stories that you and jaw-dropping stories of what these people are able to do and be about, this book is so much more. And we get a hint at what the real target of Exodus is in two texts. The first is found in Exodus 6. Where God speaks to Moses from a burning bush. And the second is the closing passage in Exodus 40. Let's look at them in turn. The first one, Exodus 6. This is what God is saying. Therefore, say to the people of Israel. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from the slavery from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will be, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give you to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. And then I love it. It's just one sentence. I am the Lord. If you read this carefully, there's this prominence of God saying, I am the Lord. And God begins with this statement. He says, listen, he explains that the purpose of their deliverance is so that you shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to save you so that you know something. And God links even his commitment to keep his promise to Abraham with the final affirmation, I am am the lord therefore the book of exodus is really not about israel it's not about these people it's actually about god and you're going to see even further at towards the end of the book everything in this book is leading to this climactic moment the storyline of the book is that god is delivering his people out of slavery at the hands of a very powerful nation. And he brought them through the Red Sea, defeating their enemies, gave them the law, and specified what worship should be like. And where does this all lead to? Exodus 40. Exodus 40 is this beautiful picture. And you've got to have eyes to see it. Exodus 40, starting at 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled. The tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever uh, the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, and the sight of, the, of all the house of the Israel throughout all their journeys. Don't, don't miss this significant moment. This is, this is really important. The God who rescued them from slavery, drowned this powerful Egyptian army, displayed his glory on Mount Sinai for all the people to see, issued his holy law and now this very god who rescues delivers gives them the law allows them to see this god is now dwelling amongst them god has delivered his people and he dwells with them god is not like the so-called gods who who are unmoved, they're uninvolved in the affairs of the everyday person. God is near. He is eminent. He's with His people. And for you and I as New Testament folks, this should bring you great security and great joy. That this same God who delivers you From your sins, rescue you, helps you get a vision of what his glory is to be like. That same God is the God who is with you and near to you. And if we take these two verses and put them together, I think it could summarize the message this way. That Exodus displays the God who delivers his people and the God who dwells with them. Exodus displays the God who delivers His people and the God who dwells with them. Exodus is about God. The nation of Israel just becomes a platform upon which the glory of God is seen, by which the people of God and the rest of the world can see God's glory be made known among the nations. Throughout the book, we see an emerging picture of what God is like. He, he is the God who controls history, who reveals himself as the I am. He is the God who says, I am holy, who, who is willing to act to save his people, who speaks, who is transcendent, who lives among his people. Israel is just the canvas. Israel is a canvas on which God displays the portrait of his glory. God says, look, I've got a blank slate. I'm going to call him Israel. Watch this. Watch me work. Watch me save. Watch me deliver. Watch watch me deal with these unholy, broken people. And watch this so that I am glorified, that I am magnified. And I find it quite interesting that even the apostle Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 2. Israel, you see, is is only the first canvas. For God's glory. Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he has loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him. And seated with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages. He might show. Show his immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are the next canvas where God displays through us and on us his glories. He, he is showing to the world his immeasurable riches of his grace through you, through me, through the church corporately. The gospel is not about us. It's about the glory of God. Exodus is not about Israel. It's about the Glory of God. So how does Exodus begin? The first 14 verses give us a, very quickly kind of give us a setting of what is going on, and it's clearly connected to the previous book. Exodus is the second of five books that Moses wrote. And Todd cannot answer this. What are collectively what are the first five books of the Bible called? Oh, good. That may be 20% you bet. It's the Pentateuch. The first five books Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and. Yeah. Very good. You get your gold star this morning. And Exodus is designed to be this continuation of the story from the book of Exodus. Verse 1 of Exodus starts off with a Hebrew word for and. That's the first word. Of Exodus, even though our English Bibles don't portray that, the Hebrew Bible, the first word is and, and it it connects us to where Genesis left off. So it's a natural continuation. And Genesis chapter 15 ends with Joseph's Joseph's death in Egypt in a very interesting and providential journey. Joseph was the 11th son of, of Jacob, also known as Israel. Jake, jacob was the son of isaac and isaac was the son of abraham the man who was called out of ur of the chaldeans and promised that he would become the father of many nations and that his offspring would someday inherit the land of canaan this is that this is that family and joseph was dearly loved by his father this 11th son dearly loved by his father to the point where donny osmond screws up the whole story and does this this, this musical about it. But he is loved by his father. But he is hated and sold into slavery by his brothers. And it, but in that process, he is promoted to a place of prominence in the Egyptian government. And then he saved that nation from star- starvation during a time of, of famine. But he also forgave his brothers for their sins against him and relocated his entire father's family to the land of Goshen, in Egypt, a province in Egypt. And verse 1 begins with the names of Jacob's sons. List them all off, the 12 tribes of Israel. And we learn that all the descendants of Jacob was 70 persons. Why mention numbers? Well, 70 is kind of this idea of completion. And, but it also points to establish the incredible growth of a nation in the future years. In verse 7, we hear a reference that sounds very familiar to Genesis 1.28, where God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. Listen to uh, this section in verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So it's this natural continuation. And Exodus begins with a growing and an expanding nation of God's people. And then there's a major turn that happens in verse 8. A new king begins to reign in Egypt who did not know this man named Joseph. According to Exodus uh, chapter 12, the people of Israel lived in Egypt for about 430 years. So there was ample time for multiple dynasties to take place. Multiple dynasties. And I want you to stop and think. 400 years. It's easy to kind of stand back and say, wow, 430 years, that passed. 430 years. How much changes in that time period? What would your great, great, great grandfather's life, what would it have looked like? And many scholars believe that a major political shift took place during these 400 years. Joseph Loke likely came into power under the reign of the Hyksos pharaohs. These were foreign a uh, foreign nation that came into Egypt, took over this land, and began to rule as the pharaohs in this this area. And they conquered Egypt and they began to rule. And eventually these Hyksos pharaohs were overthrown by by the people. There was a natural, like an American revolution, they began to overtake and they began to put into form their own government. And as often happens, a new nationalism took place. A new nationalism that kind of bred a disdain for foreigners and Israel was caught in the middle of this political upheaval. So the fact that Joseph was not known could be more than just a lack of knowledge about Joseph's existence. It could have meant that the ruling Pharaoh treated the Israelites as though Joseph had never been the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph was, after all, a foreigner. We do not know, associate, or acknowledge that anymore. So over time, the Israelites became a persecuted and an abused minority. And under the banner of national security, a culture of oppression started to be developed. Verses 10 through 14 show a progressivism that began to take place as the racial fears of the Egyptians prompted more and more aggressive actions. They moved from dealing shrewdly with them to oppression. And ruthlessness. And the Egyptians feared losing control of their country again. They're going, the heck if this is going to happen to us again. These people are a threat to us. So, they started slave labor. A vital workforce to build up the nation of Egypt. And the goal was to reduce their influence. and, And the threat of these people of Israel by enslaving them population reduction by government-sanctioned oppression was the goal listen to verses 14 uh, 9 through 14 he said to the people behold the people of israel are too many and too mighty for us Do you hear the the fear in that they're they're too much and they're too mighty for us so come let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply they're, they're going to start growing if we don't do something. And if war breaks out, they're going to, we've seen this happen before, they're going to join the enemies. And they're going to escape from our land. So there was a, a population reduction plan, but it's obvious it didn't work. It says something about the sovereignty of God, right? Go ahead. Whatever your nation wants to do. I'm going to multiply these people even under the most oppressive situations. I'm going to multiply and multiply and multiply them. And eventually we're going to see next week this led to a government sanctioned genocide. The intentional killing of male babies. The more that Egypt oppressed the people, the more they grew and the tension increased as Israel felt the full force of this governmental policy of slavery and as It was this way a long time ago. It it took a hundred, there were hundreds of years while they were in slavery. And God's promise to Abraham about blessing and land in Canaan just seemed far off. The book of Exodus establishes very early on the enormity of the challenge that God's people faces. They were enslaved. They were hopelessly bound down. And God made this promise to our, our father Abraham centuries ago that you will, I'll be your God and you'll be my people and I will multiply you. You'll be like the sands on the seashore and you'll even have your own land. And these people are going, are you serious, God? I am stuck here working, building these pyramids, building these storehouses. I'm being oppressed. We're, our children are now being killed. It's hard for us to just even imagine how hopeless this situation must have felt. None of us have experienced this. Matir goes on to say that they were by divine command under divine promise awaiting divine intervention. They were there by divine command under divine promise abraham and awaiting a divine intervention for god to break through of these things however they saw no outward sign heaven above was as silent as earth around and was threatening maybe you get that in your your period of life you're just going god are you ever going to break through why is heaven silent Why is it silent? Why is this happening? I'm being pressed in and boxed in and pressed down on every side. Why is this happening? Israel understood. They had become the slaves of Egypt and their lives were filled with ruthless, bitter work. And it isn't until chapter 2 that God's name is even mentioned. And the first time it was used was in a hopeful context. And during those Many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. First time that it was mentioned. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew These are powerful verses with a lot of emotion for these these people. Israel was in deep, emotional, physical, psychological, every kind of pain possible. And they were groaning. In the Hebrew, this is a strong word. It it wasn't like you and I. like. uh. It was a deep belly from the soul kind of groaning. They cry out to God for rescue. I don't think that we, any of you really, have really cried, maybe you have, have really cried out to God for rescue. But God hears their cry. And God remembers their covenant. And then verse 25 drives a point home that must have been nagging at these people as they suffered under oppression. Does God even see us? You know, hearing is distant. I can hear my kids down the block or playing at the park. I can hear them. But does God see and does God know are two different levels of intimacy? And the question to that answer is yes. Exodus is the story of God as he rescues his people. God heard the groanings of his people. So here's the thing. So what? I am convinced that Exodus should make us sing. Really. It's kind of fun sitting up in the front row, kind of hearing, well, depending, you know, where you sit. Um, It's fun hearing the people sing behind you. I love you. Uh, And I, I, I would much rather hear you sing from the from your toes all the way up and just sing with all your heart, no matter whether you can keep a pitch or not keep a pitch. Just singing loudly. There's something about the front row that you in the back row miss. Exodus should make us sing. This should lead us into just this wonderful, worshipful experience every week. We know the full picture of the gospel, right? As New Testament believers, we know the full picture the picture of the story of the Bible, and we can see it appear in many different ways. In other words, once you start looking at the foundations of redemption in the Bible, it is remarkable what you are going to find. It's no wonder why Psalm 106, mark it down, write it down, read Psalm 106 multiple times. It is often referred to as the Exodus Psalm. It says this, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all of his praise? That's an Exodus psalm just magnifying God. Just saying, look at him, praise him, give thanks to him. Who can even begin to declare everything that he's done? It's no wonder that even the book of Revelation says that in heaven they will sing the song of Moses. Sing the song of Moses. They will sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So what does Exodus do for us? Why does it make us sing? Here's the first reason. The first reason is Exodus shows us that while life can be very, very, very hard, and some of you go, I know, God always keeps his promise. Always always. It's one thing to hear that God keeps his promise, but it's another way, another thing to see a tangible and specific example. Israel became exhibit A. Exhibit A of God answering and keeping his promise. Even though they felt forgotten and abandoned or they didn't feel like god answered this prayers. it was all ol- it's only a matter of time before god does answer prayers and exodus shows us that even hardship and suffering can fall into the plan of god and without slavery without slavery the deliverance would not have been as glorious or it would not have even come into their mind as needing to be saved right It's even in your times of trial and suffering and pain where you just cry out to God and just say, Lord, save me, help me, deliver me from this, help me in this situation, deliver my family from this, this, this. And then when God answers, it is far more climactic and glorious than what you ever previously experienced. Phil Riken says this, our sufferings help us to look for salvation. Our sufferings help us to look for salvation. Or to quote again from Spurgeon, Reichen says, the whip of persecution is helpful because it makes us learn that this is the house of bondage and moves us to long after and to seek for the land of liberty, the land of joy. It, it creates in us a stir to, uh, for that promise, that final heavenly place. This right now brothers and sisters even though we are in christ this is a land of bondage it should living here every day should make us yearn oh jesus would you just come back today i want to be with you forever i want to long for that land of liberty of freedom of eternal joy and satisfaction with you And Exodus shows us that even in the midst of long seasons of painful waiting, God's promises are still true today. It's only a matter of time. 430 years. How's your patience? God will deliver his people. Secondly, Exodus reminds us that the end game is God's glory. That's the end game. When you read the book of Exodus through a God-centered lens versus an Israel-centered lens, it changes everything. You come to see that there's so much going on here that than God building a new nation or rescuing people from oppression. It's more than just these little stories. God aims to magnify himself through what he does in Israel. This tiny collection of people will serve as a, a narrative telescope with which we bring we, God is brought near, and we see His majesty, His glory and His power and the might of God. We will see that God doesn't just deliver his people from Egypt because they were being abused. He delivers them because God is greater than Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt. Again, Phil Reichen, just so you know. This commentary by Phil Reichen is like this thick, and it reads like a devotional. If you're looking for a good book, a good commentary to read along with me, this Phil Reichen, I can't remember what it's called right now, it's up in my office, this, this commentary is devotional material reading he goes on to say the exodus therefore is not simply an epic struggle between moses and pharaoh or between israel and egypt ultimately it's another skirmish in the great ongoing war between god and satan god's aim is to make his name be known and he raises pharaoh up for that very purpose exodus 9 but for this purpose i have raised you up To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's God saying, really? You ain't nothing, Pharaoh. I I raised you up. I put you in this place. Ultimately, not for your, your fame and your glory. But ultimately, so that I can display to the whole earth my fame, my name, my glory, my strength, my saving ability. And that my promises are always true and when god's glory is the end game it changes how you view everything it changes how you view suffering how it changes changes how you view difficulties it changes how you deal with oppression or delay or even success when god's people forget about god's glory and start focusing on their inwardly on their circumstances when you start forgetting about god's glory and all these things are working together for our good and God's glory, and we start focusing inwardly on our belly button and our issue, bad things start happening. For Israel, golden calves jump out of the fire. And people start to complain and say ridiculous things like this. Is it it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out out of Egypt? But when you've seen and tasted God's glory and when you've tasted his presence and experienced that, you wouldn't dare go anywhere without it. Third, Exodus awakens new affections for the gospel. Awakens new affections for the gospel. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and when you've been rescued, really rescued from your sin, you read the book of Exodus differently. In the New Testament, we hear that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we are you would no longer be enslaved to sin. Get the context there enslaved to sin enslaved comes up numerous times in in exodus or you when we hear the book of ephesians say you were once debt once far off and you have brought been brought near by the blood of christ you cannot help but to see this emerge in exodus as slaves are set free with an amazing display of god's divine power as the law is given, as the tabernacle is built, as God dwells in this tabernacle, you cannot help but rejoice at the very thought of a holy God who dwells with his people. And what's more, you can't help but think of the end of the Bible when you hear this. Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. If you have a gospel-affected heart, you will read Exodus with gospel-affected eyes. You'll see the beginning of salvation as we know it, and it will make you rejoice. You will see yourself in the book, and you'll see yourself in the book as a slave desperate desperate crying out for deliverance completely helpless and in awe of what god can do number four exodus helps you see jesus more clearly the book of exodus will help you see jesus and you need to remember we talked about this last week at easter remember after his resurrection on the Wrote to Emmaus, Jesus appeared with his two disciples, and and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The the story of the gospel through Jesus Christ is is the theme of the entire Bible, even Exodus. Exodus will help you see Jesus. Jesus is personally involved and pictured. In Exodus, in in Jude 5, Jude 5 tells us that it was Jesus who delivered his people out of Egypt. Matthew 2.15 shows us that Jesus' life is patterned after Exodus. Out of Egypt I called my son. He was born as a savior, rescued from enemies, passed through the waters of baptism, went into the desert, went up on the mountain where he gives the the sermon on the mount. Jesus is a Passover lamb. Dying during the very feast that marked Exodus, the Exodus uh, deliverance. Jesus is the bread of life, manna, and gives living water. And as you read Exodus, you see Jesus and you are reminded of what he really means to you. Here's the last quote and I'm going to have Leah put it up there. Phil Reichen does this. As we trace their spiritual journey, we discover that we need exactly what the Israelites needed. Exactly. He goes on to say we need a liberator, a God to save us from slavery and destroy our enemies. We need a provider, a God to to feed us bread from heaven and water from the rock. We need a lawgiver, a God to command us how to love and serve him. And we need a friend, a God to stay with us day and night forever. Like the Israelites, God heard their groaning, the groaning of his people. And the glorious message of the Bible is that there is freedom from slavery. Freedom from slavery of sin through Jesus Christ. And although things are very different in Exodus, kind of bringing back Isaac and that childhood epiphany, how did you ever survive? Things are very different. But if you read closely and listen intently, it is the same story. And you will see Jesus. So out of The groaning of slavery. The groaning of your slavery. God creates the song of redemption. And salvation is glorious. And exodus is where it dawns. So get ready. The rest of 2014, a good chunk of 2015 us seeing Christ throughout all of Exodus and us becoming a people who are coming from underneath the bondage and slavery of sin and being able to sing songs of praise because this is the Savior who has done it and we get to be the canvas the canvas of God's glory being displayed through our lives that's our privilege amen let's pray father God it is true that we we do need a liberator we need one who saves us from our slavery, from our sins, from our, those things that we love to go back to. We need You to liberate us, to free us from this bondage that we are in today. Lord, it's true that we need You to provide us with a bread from heaven found ultimately in Jesus Christ, who gave His body and His blood for his people. And Lord, we, we thank you how you even feed us with, with the gospel found in your most holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible scriptures. Lord, we thank you that you feed us day in and day out with your very presence. Lord, we we, we confess that we need you as the perfect lawgiver to instruct us because Lord, we are prone to wander prone to wander moment by moment, day by day, week by week. Lord, we are prone to wander and we need your good and perfect law to instruct us how to live as those who have been redeemed. Lord, we also confess that we need you as friend. You are one who is closer than a brother. You are the God who dwells within us. Beside us and around us, you guide our every step. And Lord, may we profess together that we need you. We confess this morning that even between Easter Sunday and the next Sunday, we have fallen again. We have dropped the ball. But just like Israel, Lord, You you are faithful to Your promise. You will sustain us. You will forgive us. And You are faithful and just to forgive us from all of our sins if we confess them. So Lord, hear our prayers. Hear our confessions as we lay them before you, an awesome and holy God. Father God, as we come to the Lord's Supper, may we remember that this meal is for redeemed sinners needing to be reminded again of the gospel, that you are powerful to save us and that you want to nourish us and heal Heal us with your very presence this morning. So God, hear our prayers. And thank you for Exodus. Thank you for the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name.